Well, good evening, church. It is an honor to be able to stand before you once again and bring to you the word of our Lord. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Amos chapter 1. Amos chapter 1. And just go ahead and keep your Bibles open because we're going to, Lord willing, walk all the way through the book of Amos. Tonight, as Pastor Ed said, you're continuing your study in the Minor Prophets. And and this is an important study because often these books of the Bible are just passed over in our reading. Or if they are read, they are sorely misunderstood. When I shared that I was preaching the book of Amos tonight with with my children, one of them looked at me and said, the entire book? And that was followed quickly by the other question, how long is Amos? So I told them it was nine chapters, and then I paused for just a moment, and they paused. The wheels were turning in the one child's head and said, do we have to come? (laughs) Yes, for that question alone, they had to come. But the one who said it is no longer in here, so Pastor Ed gave that person an out. Um, So yes, Well, rest easy. I'll be preaching, Lord willing, for around 40 minutes or so tonight. As I said, my assignment is to preach an overview sermon on the book of Amos, not to unpack all of its treasures. I will leave that to you in your reading this week. With that, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Father, uh, we are needy people. We are people who have come to gather to worship you and to hear from your word. Lord, the task before me at hand is great, and that is to make much of you. And so I pray, Father, that all of us would be edified by your word through the book of Amos. Help me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, before we jump into an entire book, I want to know context. So I think it's important that we establish a few things. If you look in your Bibles in Amos chapter 1, we are told that the human author in verse 1 is a man named... All right, so we are doing well tonight. His his name is Amos. He is from a small city of Tekoa, which is a village about six miles south of Bethlehem. And Amos lived in Tekoa when God called him to be a prophet, according to chapter 7, verse 15. But we're told a little bit more about Amos later on in the book. We're told that he's a shepherd and that he works with sycamore trees. And this is actually important for us to understand because as we work our way through the book of Amos, we actually see Amos use language or imagery that reflects his life as a shepherd. But perhaps what is most notable about Amos is that he was not a son of a prophet. He was not a professional prophet. No, he's what we would call a blue-collared man whom God called to bring the message to his people. Additionally, we know from a few things in verse 1 that Amos' ministry took place during the reign of King Uzziah. He's the king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of God's people, and during the reign of King Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And it happened just before a large earthquake, which is pretty much all the information we have on this earthquake. And based on the above information, we can surmise that Amos ministered to Israel somewhere between the years of like 760 to 750 BC. 
And according to chapter 7, verse 15, God commanded Amos to go and to prophesy his message to the people of Israel. Now, the setting is quite interesting. Uh, Israel is enjoying a season of prosperity, uh, one that hasn't been realized in their nation since the days of King Solomon. Their king, Jeroboam II, has expanded their borders. They've enjoyed peace in the region, and they actually established control of major trade routes. And so the result was Israel was becoming a wealthy nation. Their excessive wealth, we're told in the book, led them, the leaders, to the creation of a, to create a wealthy upper class who cared little about anyone else besides themselves. The Israelites considered themselves very religious, we're told. And in one sense, they were. They observed temple worship. They offered sacrifices. They gave their tithes. But as Amos tells us in this book, the problem was not with their religious activity. It was the fact that their religious activity did nothing more than produce proud demonstrations of piety. In other words, the temples in Israel were full of religious activity that failed to transform the hearts of the people. And it was in these conditions that God goes to Amos and says, I need you to bring my message to Israel. So let's take a look, if you will, at the book of Amos. Let's begin in verse 2. Hear the word of our Lord. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Our first point is an original point to the minor prophets. It is that God judges the nations of the earth. That is chapters 1 and 2. The message of Amos begins with this fundamental truth. The Lord speaks. Amos presents the voice of God as a roar here in verse 2. And if you were to flip over a few pages to chapter 3, verse 8 you would see that Amos actually intends for his readers to understand that the roar of God is a roar of judgment that is coming for his people like a lion pursuing his prey. Amos is setting the tone for his book. The sovereign God roars a message of judgment. And notice where this judgment comes from in chapter 1, verse 2. It's the place where God dwells. It is Zion in Jerusalem. Now, go with me for a second. If you are the northern kingdom, Israel, you don't have Jerusalem in your territory, right? Jerusalem belongs in Judea. And here, they hear that the Lord roars from Jerusalem because the northern kingdom, Israel, under the leadership of Jeroboam the first, they had rebelled against God. They had split from Judah, and Jeroboam the first rejected Jerusalem as a place of worship. So instead, he establishes all of these places of worship in his northern kingdom, places like Bethel, Dan, and Samaria. And for two centuries, Israel had not worshipped the Lord in Jerusalem. But now, 
This prophet comes into the northern kingdom and says, God roars, and he roars from his dwelling place. And they would have understood what he is saying because they knew that it was in Jerusalem that David brought the ark. They knew it was in Jerusalem that Solomon built the temple, and that is where God commanded his people to worship him. This surely would have gotten their attention. And notice what God roars in verse 3. He says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with the threshing sledges of iron. Amos brings this roar of judgment from, Ra- from Yahweh. And perhaps to Israel's delight, it's a roar of judgment against their neighbors. Beginning in chapter 1, going all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, Amos outlines the sins of the neighbors of Israel. Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab are judged. And notice, it's not for idolatry against God, although they do commit that sin. No, it's for their sins against human beings, image bearers of God. And please note that that number there, the three and the four, they're there to communicate that God is judging these nations for a multitude of sins. God had been patient with them. He had seen them continue on in their sin. But now the time has come for God to bring judgment to the nations of the world. And we don't have time to unpack all the details pertaining to God's judgments against these nations. But suffice to say, Amos is making it clear that even if these nations do not recognize God as their God, they are not exempt from being judged by God. And why is that? Paul gives us some insight in Romans 2 verse 15 where he is talking about Gentiles there, and he says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Friends, these nations may not have had the Ten Commandments, but God had written the law of the Lord on their hearts, And these men had rebelled against God's law through the mistreatment of image bearers. And the result was God would judge them for their sins. So if we move over to chapter 2 in verses 4 and 5, we actually see that Israel is hearing this prophecy. The neighbors of Israel are being judged. And then right here in chapter 2, verse 4, Amos drops a little bit of a bomb. He says, yes, these nations are being judged. But then he says in chapter 2, verse 4, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. Wait, did you, did you see? Judah. This is not Moab. This is Judah that is having judgment pronounced against them. I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and they have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. Church Judah, 
The place where God's presence resides is under judgment. And and notice what they're judged for. God's people had rejected God's law. They had been led astray by their false religion. They must have been, I don't know, maybe a little too close for comfort for Israel. Their distant relatives in Judah are being judged for doing the same thing that they're doing. What is more? If those who were listening to Amos paid close attention, they realized they were next. Because if you were to look at a map and you start to list these nations that Amos lists, you realize they start to make a circle around Israel. And who is at the center of that circle? It is Israel. The purpose of Amos' message is to confront Israel in their sins. We might say the trap has been set. Look at chapter 2, verse 6 with me, please. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. These verses just lay out the sins of Israel. The covenant people of God. Put that in our minds. Let's not become callous to what is being said here. The covenant people of God were an idolatrous people. And just like Judah, they rejected God's law and they worshiped false gods. And the result is they were not living as they were commanded to. Instead, they became comfortable with their false worship and their accumulated wealth. The result is that the rich, we're told, were selling the poor. A pair of sandals is an idiom for the transfer of property there. They were oppressing the weak. They were abusing the defenseless. They were profaning God's name and exploiting the destitute for pleasure. These people of God do not look like their God. In these few verses, Amos provides a clear picture of what happens when God's people abandon the truth for false worship. And in chapter 2, verse 10, Amos then contrasts Israel's treatment of the poor and the oppressed and the needy with God's treatment of them. God says, do you remember the exodus? You were the very people that you're oppressing. And I showed mercy to you. I brought you out when you were poor, oppressed, needy. And what do you do now? You repay that mercy by abandoning the commands I have given you. But that's not all. Their idol worship led to grotesque immorality. Did you catch that in verse 7? A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. 
This is the result of them abandoning the truth and giving themselves wholly to the worship of idols. They indulge themselves in unspeakable immorality. So God, he announces his judgment in chapter 2, verse 13. Look, behold, I will press, or you might say I will crush you in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Because of Israel's abandoning of God's commands or worship of idols and the oppression of the poor, God would judge them. And we learn in chapters 1 and 2 that God is very patient. Three sins, four sins continue on. But there comes a point when God will judge. And God's judgment, church, it is universal. His judgment of the nations tell us that the whole world is accountable to him for their actions. The pagan nations of God's, the pagan nations and God's chosen people were without excuse. Church, the Bible tells us that God is holy, right? And we are all made in his image to know him, to reflect his nature and his character. Yet every one of us, just like the nations and the Israelites have fallen short of God's glory. We've rebelled against God. We failed to image him properly. And through our sin, we are separated from God. And the Bible tells us that God will judge all sinners because of their sins. And that's what these first two chapters tell us. God is patient. God is a sovereign judge. His judgment is universal. And he justly judges the nations for their sins. So now in chapters 3 through 6, God declares the reason for judgment on his people, Israel. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Why was God going to crush Israel? He keeps telling us over and over again. In in chapter 3, verse 2, though, he gives us some clear insight. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God had a unique relationship with Israel. He had chosen them of all the nations of the earth to be his people. And he established that covenant back in Genesis chapter 17. And as the people of God, Israel was given privileges and responsibility. As some have said, I heard it growing up, with great privilege comes great responsibility. And Israel was supposed to be a distinct people. They were to look like their God and not the people of the earth. However, through the rejection of God, his truth, and the embracing of idol worship, Israel looked more like the pagan nations of the earth than their holy God. They indulged themselves in sin. They took for granted their election as his people. And they thought, church, they thought that they could enter into their sin. And because of their position with God, God would not judge them. They thought wrong. I wonder if oftentimes we think the same way. If we think, well, God is gracious. We belong to him. Therefore, we can indulge in our own sin. No doubt this message of judgment was not received well. After all, Israel is prospering. They have 
peace. And as I said a moment ago, their king had expanded their borders. They were becoming wealthy. We're told in chapter 3, verse 15, the rich had summer and winter homes. How could God be angry with them? Well, to prove it to him, God calls witnesses against them. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. God calls Ashdod and Egypt. You know, sometimes we're not super familiar with the geography, but this should raise an alarm. God is calling the traditional enemies of Israel to come and testify against them. How embarrassing for Israel. God calls on these pagan nations, those who had never experienced special redemption, to rise up and witness Israel's great terror. Nations. Nations that have a history of exploiting the poor and living off the oppressed would be shocked at how Israel was treating its fellow men. And Amos tells us that during this day, Samaria, the capital of Israel, was a city that was controlled by a few wealthy upper-class people who thought nothing of despising, abusing, and oppressing their fellow members of the family of grace. They were willing to exploit the masses and use fear to keep them in check. One would be forgiven if you read Amos up to this point and thought, well, there's no way that Israel is very religious. It can't be. I mean, if Israel is really doing this to its own people, how in the world could they be religious? But we see in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, that Israel's very religious. Look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. It says, the Lord says, come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. There's sarcasm here. He says, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithe every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leaven and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. Look at these next words. For so you love to do, O people of Israel. Israel's wealthy leaders were very religious they built temples. They worshiped on the Sabbath. They pro- the problem was that their religion had no effect on their lives. It had no bearing on how they treated each other. Their religion affirmed their pride, their selfishness, and their oppression. Church, when I read the Bible, I see very clearly, as I said a moment ago, God is holy. And his people are to be holy in all their conduct. So anyone who could claim to follow God and treat people this way is sorely misguided. Israel was deceived. They were religious, but their religion was false. Yet, even as they abandoned the commands of God, church, God showed them mercy. Look with me, please, at chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He said, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain 
and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Actually, in chapter 4, verses 6 through 12, Amos tells us that God in his mercy brought trial after trial after trial after trial to his people in an attempt to bring them back to himself. How merciful of God. He did not say, see you later. He brought trial after trial to awaken them from their sin and to call them to return to him. Yet, Amos tells us they continued in their pride, in their foolishness, in their sinful ways, believing that as God's covenant people, he would approve of their behavior. They did not think that they needed to pay attention to God's warnings. They thought wrong. You know, as I was thinking about this text, I think about some friends of mine who are going through severe trial, and it's been trial after trial after trial, and we're talking, he and I, about this text, and and he says these words to me. He said, you know, um, while we cannot declare every trial something that is there to draw us back to God, per se, in the sense that when we're in sin, it's a mercy of God, he said, but I do know that after walking with the Lord for many years... One of the ways in which God shows his people mercy is by bringing trials into our lives when we are indulged in our sin. And he does so in order to awaken us, to bring us back to him. So God, in his mercy, we're told in Amos, sent trials to bring the nation of Israel back to him. Yet these words ring true. You did not return to me. Because of Israel's hard hearts and their neglect of God's warnings of mercy, God summoned them to prepare to meet him. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. He said, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Judgment is coming swiftly for the nation of Israel. And in chapter 5, verse 4, God laments this. We get a glimpse into God's nature and character in his lamenting of the judgment that is coming. God again shows mercy by appealing to Israel to repent. In chapter 5, verse 4, he says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Look at this. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph. God's mercy is astounding. He tells him, again, come back to me, and you will live. Do not go to your idols. They will not stand against my judgment but come to me and you will live. And this is amazing, especially when you consider the sins they had committed. Amos outlines those sins again in chapter 5, verse 10 through 13. Here's the outline. They hate those who speak truth. They abuse the poor. They place excessive taxes on the poor's food. And they live in lavish wealth while their fellow brothers have nothing. 
and they'd rather make money through bribery than doing what is right for their fellow men. And last but certainly not least, they afflict those who are righteous. They were greedy people with no concern for the poor, which is really mentioned all throughout the book of Amos. They had no concern for the oppressed or for the righteous. So Amos in 5.13 says that the times are absolutely evil. And what a statement, especially when you consider all the material blessings that they were experiencing. It was absolutely astounding. You, you would think that Israel hears this message from Amos and they go, you're crazy. Look around. God is pleased with us. Because they wrongly equated the blessing of material wealth as God's approval for their lifestyle. See, God didn't care about their wealth. He cared about his covenant people's treatment of those made in his image. And Israel sinned by lacking care and compassion for the oppressed. One theologian says that such a lack of concern for the poor shows a lack of compassion, which shows a lack of understanding for our own situation, of our need for God's merciful attention to us in our sins and our transgressions. Again, in chapter 5, but in verse 14 and 15, Amos exhorts them to seek good and not evil and establish justice so that the Lord would be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. But they did not turn from their sins. Church is a new covenant people of God. As according to Paul in Galatians 6.16, the true Israel, our lives ought to be marked by a concern for others. Especially, as we learn in Amos, the poor, the needy, and the destitute. Because of the transformation of the gospel in our lives, there should be a developing and a growing concern for those in need. I wonder if that marks your life. Is your life marked by greed and a lack of concern for the oppressed and the righteous as such was the case with the leaders here in chapter 5? Or is it marked by mercy? In chapter 6, Amos provides a clear picture of Israel's sin. They had been complacent, finding security in their wealth, proud in their positions and their pagan worship. It's very clear through the reading of Amos that pride was at the center of so many of their sins. So God speaks judgment against his people. Look at 6, verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8. Listen to the words of our Lord. I abhor the pride of Jacob, and I hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. I'm sure this was hard for Israel to stomach. They looked around. Life was good. Things were peaceful. They had money in their bank accounts. Their 401ks were doing pretty good. They had jobs. They had food. 
They drink. How is it that God would judge them? God judges the hearts of his people as demonstrated through the actions of their lives. Pride seems to always be at the root of their sins. When we peel back the layer of even our sins, we'll see that inevitably there are traces of pride. And Amos tells us that God hates pride. Israel was full of pride and self-confidence. They had ignored God's hand in their lives in chapter 6, verse 13, and they had no concern for the ruin of Joseph, which is the ruin of God's people. One theologian rightly states that the lack of caring about what happens to others is a bitter fruit of pride. Do you have a lack of concern for what happens to others? I confess it's something I wrestle with daily. I all too often see myself as being worthy of God's mercy and grace, but not seeing others as being worthy of that grace as well. Here we're told because of the violation of their covenant with God through the exploitation of the poor, God pronounces judgment. Look at chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 14. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. And that's exactly what happened a few decades later. The Assyrians came in and took God's people captive. Sin brings judgment. Sin brings God's judgment. And that's exactly what we're told in chapter 6. We learn from chapters 3 through 6 that God was just in his reasons for judging Israel. His covenant people were unfaithful. They were worshiping idols. They ignored God's merciful calls to return. They were greedy, oppressing the poor, the dishonest, the unjust, and they were full of pride. They are people entrenched in self-indulgence. These are not markers of people who fear God, who love and worship his holy name. Therefore, God is bringing judgment to his people. So up to this point in the book of Amos, we have seen that God's judgment is universal and that God is just in judging his people. And in the last three chapters, we'll see that God's judgment was executed and his promise of salvation is given. Point number three, God's judgment executed and his promise of salvation, chapter seven through nine. It's actually in this point in the book of Amos that Amos in, in the message of God takes a little bit of a shift. See, in the first six chapters, Amos brought messages from God to his people. But here, beginning in chapter seven, we have visions from God to Amos. Five to be exact, and the first two visions are recorded in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Let me read them for us. This is what the Lord God showed me. 
Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented. It shall not be, said the Lord. Verse 4, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. The Lord gives Amos two visions here in the first six verses of chapter 7. And he does so to teach both Amos and Israel a little bit about their sins. In these two visions, God depicts the judgment that would come because of their sin. In other words, God is saying, this Israel is what your sin deserves, complete obliteration. That's how I see your sin. It's absolutely amazing, though, because then God says, but this shall not be. Let's read it again. And this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass in the land, I said, oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. And then... Even in the second vision of the all-consuming fire, the Lord again relents and says, it shall not be. In both visions, church, Amos, just like Moses back in Exodus chapter 32, intercedes for his people. He pleads on behalf of Israel for the Lord to please forgive and to relent. And God in his mercy says, I will not completely destroy Israel. God is once again dealing mercifully with his people. In his relenting, the it shall not be, he is showing them what their sins deserve and the mercy that he will extend by not bringing complete obliteration of his people. God will judge, don't get me wrong, but he will do so in mercy. God then shows Amos two more visions, the first in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, which is that of a plumb line, and the second in chapter 8, that of an over-ripened basket of fruit. In these next two visions, we're told that God's patience has dried up. He will no longer forgive the sins of his people. He has warned them and warned them and warned them. He has called them to repentance, and Israel would not return to him. So while God would be merciful, he would certainly execute his judgment on his people for their sins. The execution of God's judgment is depicted in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. It is one of the most sobering passages to read 
There we see the sweeping power of God. Just look at verse 1. God initiates the judgment from the altar, and it is frightening. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. None of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. The people who try to escape this judgment will not succeed. And so Amos says in chapter 9, verse 8, he says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. This is our God. The judgment is swift. It is powerful. God's judgment is universal. No one can escape it. God is just in his judgment. And if you paid attention, this book is full of judgment. Maybe you weren't quite expecting that when you came here tonight. But friends, we cannot ignore this. God takes the sins of his people very seriously. I venture to say a lot more serious than we often take it ourselves. Amos makes it clear that God is just in his judgment of his people because they failed to live according to his kingship. And if the book had ended in the first part of verse 8, God would be justified in wiping out the nation of Israel. But God is so good that in the midst of his just judgment, he provides the hope of salvation. Look with me at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. I will repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. God, in the midst of his judgment, would preserve a remnant. This is an explicit promise of salvation. And actually, if you read the book of Amos, you start to see hints of salvation beginning in chapter 5, again in chapter 7, and here we get the explicit promise of salvation. God's grand plan of redemption continues to unfold throughout the book of Amos, telling us that God intends to expand his household to include peoples from all the nations. How would he do that? Through the cross of Christ. See, Amos tells us that there is hope not just for Israel, but for all the nations. We read in the New Testament that through the cross of Christ, both Jews and Gentiles will belong to God. But the only way that they will belong to him, the only way they would escape the judgment of God that is coming is through the cross and the resurrection of Christ. 
God is holy. That is the fourth time I've said it because it's important that we understand it. You and I are sinners. And because of our sins, there is a debt that must be paid. We see that in the book of Amos. These sinful people have a debt paid for their sins. And and that debt means that there is justice that takes place by God judging his people. God would not be just if he would allow the debt of sin to go unpaid. So God, in his love, took on flesh, lived the life that Israel could not live, lived the life that you and I could not live. Then on the cross... God in the flesh, Jesus the Christ, died in the place of all who would repent and turn to him. Here on the cross, God's just wrath was satisfied through the death of Christ. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death and sin forever. Friend, if you are not a follower of Christ, you need to understand from the book of Amos, that there is coming a day when you will hear the roar of God's judgment. It will be swift and complete. But God in his mercy this evening has withheld his judgment to this point for you to hear his gospel, to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ alone for salvation. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Oh, but friend, do not presume, as Israel did, that you will be fine because you are a religious person or because you are a good person or because you are a moral person. The scriptures make it clear the only way to escape God's just wrath is to turn to Christ and trust him for salvation. Christians, can we just rejoice for a moment in the salvation that God has provided us? We are a picture of the promise of salvation, the remnant that God promised all the way back in Amos chapter 9. Our God keeps his word. He has seen fit to withhold judgment from you and I and to pour it on Christ. We are part of this remnant. We were under God's judgment until he saved us. What mercy God has shown us. But as the people of God, church, do take care by the power of the Holy Spirit to live faithfully as his people. Do not ignore the commands of scripture. Be faithful in our worship of him. Do justice, love mercy, care for those in need. The message of Amos is clear. God's judgment is universal. God is just in judging his people, and God will execute his judgment. Yet, God provides hope. And that hope is found through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just a brief moment, a very brief moment to to do a quick overview of your book of Amos Lord, it is weighty to talk so much about judgment, but Lord, you put it there explicitly for us to see how serious you take sin and that your judgment is universal and that you are just in executing judgment and that you will be merciful in your judgment, yet 
you will be thorough and complete. And the only hope we have, Father, is by the power of the Holy Spirit, convicting us of our sins, drawing us to yourself, trusting in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That is our hope, to escape your just judgment. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.